Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast or a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, France 24, and Afshin Rattansi's Going Underground. We will begin with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. The number of migrants arriving in the European Union has tripled compared to last year. Then Shana Lowe, a communications advisor for the Norwegian Refugee Council, describes how civilians who fled to the south of Gaza are still facing dire shortages of food and water. UN Secretary General Guterres has again criticized the high number of child deaths in Gaza more than in all the conflicts over the past three years. Mark Weller, a professor of international law at Cambridge University and a UN mediation expert, discusses the illegality of actions made by the Israeli Defense Forces in killing civilians in an effort to kill Hamas combatants in Gaza. They talk about what protections are required for civilians and what proportionality means. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. The number of illegal migrants arriving in the EU over the Mediterranean has tripled compared to last year. And the UN's Migration Authority says more migrants lost their lives during the crossing than at any point in the last six years. Many of the migrants depart from Tunisia in hopes of reaching Italy. In July, the EU and Tunisia issued a memorandum of understanding, promising more aid if Tunis cracks down on people smugglers and reduce the number of migrants making the dangerous crossing. But activists and some EU diplomats alike have criticized the plan. Shaina Lowe is a communications advisor with the Norwegian Refugee Council based in Jerusalem, and she told us more about the difficulty of finding a safe place in Gaza. So we have a staff of 54 trapped inside of Gaza. Most of our staff has fled from the north to the center and south of Gaza. But as, as you said, no, safe, no place is safe. Uh, just this morning, I spoke to my colleague Yusuf, who's in Khan Yunus, who told me that there was an airstrike on a building very close to where he was sleeping uh, around 6 a.m. this morning. Uh, day after day, we are hearing from our colleagues that even those who have fled, that the South is not safe. Uh, we've had colleagues lose family members in the South, including one of our colleagues, Amal, whose seven-year-old son Khaled was killed in an airstrike on Rafah a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and, and what we're hearing in addition is not just is it not safe in the South, but similar to the North, people now are struggling to find basic necessities, uh, food, clean water, um, uh, even waiting in line five, six hours a day just to get half a portion of bread. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has once again condemned the Hamas attack on Israel. He has also criticized the high number of civilian casualties that the Israeli army offensive 
is causing in Gaza. There are violations by Hamas when they have human uh, shields. But uh, when one looks at the number of civilians that were killed with the military operations, there is something that is clearly wrong. The highest number of killing of children by any of the actors in all the conflicts that uh, we witness is the maximum in the hundreds. We have, in a few days in Gaza, thousands and thousands of children killed. That was UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres speaking earlier. I'm joined now by Mark Weller. He is a professor of international law at the University of Cambridge. He's also served as a UN mediation expert. Mr. Weller, it's good to have you with us. You are aware, like many, that numerous NGOs have accused Israel of committing war crimes by attacking civilian areas. Now, Israel says it's hitting Hamas military targets, and that it has warned civilians and told them to go south to avoid being hit, and yet we know civilians have been killed. What does international law say about this? International law demands that any party to a conflict must apply what is called the principle of distinction. You must always be able specifically to target the combatants of the other side and keep safe as much as possible the civilians. What the UN Secretary General uh, has just said is that on the face of it, uh, if Israel has lost, let's say, 30 or 40 of its service members in this conflict, and on the other hand, 10,000 civilians have died, that the balance uh, that should exist between protection of civilians and military gain seems to be out of hand in this instance. We know that Israel has used the right to self-defense uh, to justify the attacks that we're seeing. Many Western countries have also supported this. How far is the right of self-defense applicable? The right of self-defense applies. It is clear that the attack of the 7th of October, launched by Hamas, entitles Israel to respond even through the use of force. But that use of force must be targeted specifically at Hamas and its fighters, at the threat of further terrorism which Israel is entitled to remove, if necessary, forcibly. The fact that Hamas itself uh, will have committed a grave war crime through the atrocities of the 7th of October does not mean that the civilians in Palestine have lost their status as people under the protection of humanitarian law. That means that Israel must not undertake strikes against targets uh, where the civilian injury is excessive in relation to the military gain that this kind of attack brings. And that, I think, is the principal criticism, that in this case, even if it is alleged that uh, there are uh, Hamas operatives hiding under buildings or somewhere else, uh, that that doesn't relieve Israel of the obligation still to minimize damage to civilians, even if that means it will be more difficult for their soldiers to engage the Hamas fighters. But if it is true that Hamas is embedding itself in areas that, have, that are densely populated with civilians, then any attack is going to inevitably result in civilian deaths, right? Most uh, advanced militaries, and this does certainly include Israel, uh, actually have targeters, uh, lawyers, who sit and consider whether any particular attack is lawful. And the balance in each case has to be made. If there, Even if there is some sort of 
Hamas infrastructure under a particular target, uh, we're not quite persuaded that that is always the case when buildings are targeted. Sometimes it looks like retaliation. But even if that is the case, that doesn't relieve Israel of the duty of protection of civilians. Mm -hmm. It can't just say that these are human shields. They are not willing human shields who mm -hmm. place themselves in this danger. There are civilians who do not lose their entitlement to protection, or at least uh, Israel has to ensure that the damage to civilians, so-called incidental damage or injury, is not out of proportion to the military gain that any particular operation brings. And that yeah. seems to be something that becomes problematic as this conflict continues and as the actions of the military uh, by, on, on the side of Israel do seem to be disproportionately affecting civilians. And, you know, what you say there, you're, you're, you're speaking about proportionality. We know that the Geneva Conventions say that warfare must be guided by the principles of proportionality. Can we speak of proportionality with more than 10,500 Palestinian deaths if we are to believe what uh, the Gaza Health Authority is saying? Yeah, I think few people doubt that there are extraordinary numbers of civilian deaths. And that is why the UN Secretary General has pointed to this imbalance uh, between the alleged military benefit that Israel claims it is pursuing in any particular attack and the evidently disproportionate civilian injuries that result. And that is one of the principal criticisms of Israel, and I think it's correct to be critical. And the other one is to deprive uh, civilian concentrations of that which is necessary for their survival, uh, depriving uh, the civilians of food, of water, of hospitals, of energy, uh, cannot really be justified. Israel says, well, otherwise Hamas might take over some of those supplies. But the answer to that is that the RC, the UN, or other agencies could safeguard and ensure that only civilians benefit. And um, the present practice of displacing a million people into an area that itself is subject to attack, mm. and then denying humanitarian supplies to those civilians which you have driven out, uh, that is also uh, very difficult to justify. Those interviews and report were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, dw.com, as well as on YouTube at a channel called DW News and DW Documentary, also available at most podcast sites. Next, France 24. An interview with Emily Tripp, director of Air Wars, a transparency watchdog which tracks and investigates civilian harm in conflict zones. The Biden administration has expressed doubt about civilian death tolls released by the health ministry in Gaza. Emily discusses her casualty findings and the impact that U.S. doubts have on public perception of the war. France 24. 
Well, today we can talk more about uh, the death toll in Gaza with uh, Emily Tripp, who is director of Air Wars. Now, Air Wars uh, closely monitors uh, conflicts to help improve the understanding of how recent wars have impacted uh, civilians. Uh, the Biden administration then has expressed doubt about the accuracy of the death toll uh, announced by uh, the health ministry in Gaza. The UN, though, has said uh, there's no reason to doubt those figures. Air Wars your organisation says that so far uh, these figures tally up. What more can you tell us, Emily? So we've been looking at uh, civilian casualty across conflicts for the past 10 years or so, um, including the Gaza campaign in May 2021. We matched up the health ministry data from 2021. I can say it was fairly accurate. What we're seeing now, I mean, the scale of harm is such that it's very difficult to get independent verification in on the thousands of deaths that the Palestinian health ministry have reported. But on a kind of anecdotal level, what I can tell you is that from case by case, we're matching up incident by incident the names that we identify um, and we're finding them, uh, the majority of them, in the, the Palestinian Health Ministry data. That includes, if I may explain, um, a case that we published yesterday, nine different families. We had about 60 civilians that we documented uh, were killed um, and we were able to find 37 of those names um, in the Ministry of Health database with matching, you know, ages and, and demographic details. Emily, another concrete incident would be uh, the Israeli airstrike on or near a market in Jabalia, the refugee camp there, which uh, resulted in 50, uh, between 50 and 69 civilians killed, at least 15 of those children, six women. Uh, those were the reports that we had. What does Air, uh, Air Wars know about that? I think this is a case, unfortunately, it, it seems extremely uh, tragic and exceptional, um, given the numbers that, that you've just mentioned. Um, but actually, what we're seeing is that this is now quite common. Um, we're seeing cases more and more like this of dozens of uh, individuals killed and injured and often in, in family units. Yeah, again, we were able to match up a lot of those names to the Ministry of Health database. Um, and unfortunately, it's just becoming more and more common. How much would your organisation rely on, on, on larger uh, humanitarian uh, organisations like Amnesty, uh, like the United Nations, who have said themselves that they are struggling in this conflict because the situation is so difficult? Yeah, it's a real challenge. Um, for us, all of the sources that we see, we kind of put them on the same uh, level. So if Amnesty can't access somewhere, um, it's the same for us as if an individual can't access somewhere. Um, for us, you know, organizations like Amnesty who are able to do on the ground witness testimonies and, and collect that information is obviously extremely valuable. But there is also a huge amount of information that, that's online um, that individuals themselves are posting. It's not necessarily through formal channels. It's not necessarily through a kind of formalized interview or a long report that you might see on Human Rights Watch. Um, but all of that information is extremely valuable. And that's what enables us to kind of continue our work, even in the most um, challenging of, of information. Emily, what kind of impact does it have when uh, I, I spoke earlier about the Biden administration expressing doubt over the accuracy in, in death tolls? Does that have an impact on the work that you're doing? It certainly does. I mean, the Biden, this is not the first time the Biden administration have doubted civilian harm figures. Um, you know, for us as an organization, we were really founded to calculate the real cost of the human war in, in the war against ISIS. Um, and that's something that, um, you know, the Americans have never kind of fully accepted that that full death toll, that, that they have kind of accepted minimal casualties. Um, I think the real challenge for us is that 
when you doubt statistics or when you doubt civilian harm and you doubt those uh, tolls, really the, the people who lose in that situation are the individuals. Um, and I think it it turns what what could be a moment for, for the world to turn to individuals who are suffering with kind of dignity and, and empathy uh, into a very contested space uh, that comes about, um, you know, focusing on, on statistics and, and numbers. What is uh, one thing, one message that you'd like to, to leave us with today as an organisation who are, you know, checking these, these figures, these high figures? I think my message would be listen to the local voices, um, listen to the individuals who are posting about their family members and and uh, their colleagues and you know their their doctors and their teachers. Listen to those voices. Uh, you know they're posting that online. Um, it's for anyone to see, um, and I think that will tell you a kind of real toll of this conflict, uh, much more than any kind of mediated uh, comment. Emily Tripp, your director of uh, Air Wars. That interview is from France 24, which may be easily found at their website, france24.com, as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English. They are also available at most podcast sites. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or want to support this listener-funded program, contact information is available at outfarpress.com or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Your support helps the weekly production of this show, which is distributed without cost to more than 100 radio stations across the globe. Many, many thanks to a listener in New York City for their support this week. We will conclude with Afshin Ratansi's Going Underground. An interview with Ilan Pape, an expatriate Israeli historian, author, and professor at the University of Exeter. Ilan describes why there is a lack of compassion in Israel for Palestinians, why American evangelicals support the eradication of Palestine, whether we are seeing the beginning of the end of the Israeli project, and the effect that U.S., British, and German government support has on Israelis going underground. It's been just over a month since Israel failed to prevent massive Palestinian resistance retaliation for decades of slaughter in Gaza. The response from Tel Aviv is thousands of children killed by a NATO nation-backed multi-billion dollar military industrial complex. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned the world not to treat the atrocities of October the 7th as if they happened in a vacuum. And no historian has done more to explain the context of mass murder in Palestine than Professor Ilan Pape, director of the European Centre for Palestinian Studies at the University of Exeter, an author of The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. He's in Haifa, partitioned from Palestine by the UN in 1947. I've got to really begin by asking you why the lack of compassion across Israel for Gaza. I know a lot of the images are censored in NATO nations, presumably in Israel as well, but why the lack of seeming compassion for what the rest of the world is seeing uh, Israel's troops do to Gaza? There's nothing new uh, in the way, and the lack of compassion, as, as you say. I mean, I've been experiencing it uh, long before the 7th of October. If I try to speak with Israelis just on the human side of the uh, catastrophe of 1948, I fail to see any compassion. I remember the, the attack on Gaza in 12, uh, 2014 with uh, then quite a high uh, a number of children killed, and I couldn't extract any compassionate uh, reaction from most of 
the Israeli Jews I knew, and definitely there was no compassion conveyed through their main uh, media or through the uh, discourse of the politician. Why is it happening? I think this has a lot to do with the nature of, of Zionism as a settler colonial movement. I mean, you have to go to the origins and, and, and like many other settler colonial movements, like the ones that established the United States uh, and Australia, uh, for instance, in order to get rid of the native indigenous population, you had to dehumanize them first and foremost. And, and there's nothing new in the way uh, Israelis uh, perceive most of the Palestinians, even the young ones, as potential enemies, as an existential danger. They are not getting to that conclusion by themselves. It is the outcome of a very deep indoctrination, uh, educational system. And it is uh, sustained by the media. I mean, you, you just have to hear uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's language when he talks about uh, the Palestinians. People think that this is a new language because of what happens on the 7th of October, but this is because people have very short memory. He spoke the same way uh, throughout his career as a prime minister, and you probably remember yourself, Prime Minister Begging, and the way he talked about Arafat uh, in 1982 during the Israeli invasion of Lebanon when he compared Arafat to Hitler in the bunker. So I'm afraid that this is not unique to the particular uh, uh, catastrophe that we are witnessing uh, today. It's a more structural uh, Israeli-Jewish perception, I would say racist perception, of the Palestinians as subhumans or infrahuman, as some of our good friends like Zizek uh, likes uh, uh, to refer to, or Agamben, Agamben as well. And some might say that that lack of compassion is reflected, of course, in uh, London, Berlin, and notably Washington, uh, not wanting a cease fire. Do you think that many Jews in what was Palestine understand that the biblical prophecy adhered to by the American Christian right, from which uh, American politicians get their uh, voters from, they, they end up uh, believing in Judeocide on the Day of Judgment? Do you think they understand that? That, that's a very good point. Uh, I, I remember the, the early uh, um, honeymoon between Benjamin Netanyahu when he was still uh, uh, the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations. He started in 1992 as this serious connection with the, the Christian Zionists. And um, he was asked about these, uh, you know, the, the fine letters in the contract, namely that Jews would be either barbecued in hell uh, all converted to Christianity in this uh, divine scenario of the end of, of, of time. Uh, and he, he said that doesn't matter now. What matters is that now we have genuine allies. Uh, and I think that's how the Israelis treat it. But most Israelis, I would say, are unaware, of course, of this. And they just uh, are very ignorant. They don't know very much. And their media feeds them that kind of narrative and historical knowledge which fits the ideology and the propaganda rather than allows them to be uh, critical thinkers and, uh, and take a more independent position towards the reality. Are we seeing the beginning of the end or could we be seeing the end of the Israel project? It's a very good question. I, I think that uh, uh, the internal Israeli war that uh, kind of raged before the 7th of October between what I called the state of Judea, namely the state of the settlers, messianic, theocratic, uh, 
fundamentalist, and the state of Israel, the most secular um, kind of multicultural version of Israeli apartheid, were fighting each other uh, for the future. I think this, uh, uh, despite the fact that it has stopped, of course, because of the war, will be resumed very soon. I already can see the indication for it uh, erupting again. This implosion from within, I think, uh, indicates or is a precursor uh, uh, for the beginning of the end or, or the end of, of the beginning, if you want. Uh, but uh, I do warn you and, and, you, and the viewer uh, as an historian, uh, these processes, which we term as beginning of an end, can be quite long in our lifetime. Uh, and more important, uh, they are quite vicious and fierce. Uh, we remember the last days of uh, apartheid South Africa and, and, and some other uh, regimes like that. And, and therefore, uh, yes, I do think that the, the whole validity of this project is not uh, holding water. And uh, as Gideon Levy, the, bra the brave uh, Israeli journalist, said in Haaretz, it seems that we are going towards only two options, and I agree with him. Either a new Nakba, and this is unfolding in front of our eyes as we speak, or a one democratic state uh, for all. I still hope, and I have to be, I'm an activist as well as an historian, I have to be optimist, that despite the, the unfolding of the first option, uh, maybe with international and regional intervention, we might build the basis for the second option. There's no third option. The, the present reality will not stay forever. So it's either a total catastrophe or hopefully building a very different future for both Palestinians and Jews in the historical land of Palestine. Is there a change because as per events of the UN Security Council after the UAE-backed resolution, it is now okay, according to London, Berlin, uh, Washington, uh, that, that killing children in vast numbers on the basis of their ethnicity is okay now, as per self-defense. That's now been established. I'm even willing to give them some sort of margin of, of doubt that... Uh, they do not fully understand, and I'm talking about the, the leaders, uh, what uh, their message of support to Israel or how their message to support in, uh, to Israel is understood by the Israelis. And I'm talking about the society and the political leadership alike. It is these messages, you know, if you don don't parliament house with the Israeli uh, colors of the Israeli flag or the, the, the Eiffel Tower, with the colors of the Israeli flag. Israelis understand it as a message which says, we absolve you from all the things you have done until the 7th of October, and you have now a free license to do whatever you want, regardless of international law and the law of wars uh, in, in the Gaza Strip. I'm not sure every American and every uh, British uh, policymakers, uh, this is the kind of message they wanted Israel uh, to have, I still hope some of them have a modicum of humanity in them. But what we know from the history of the Zionist lobby in America and in Britain, even if they would have now doubts whether they took the right decision by giving Israel this carte blanche, they would be very timid uh, and, and careful not to uh, challenge the Israeli lobby in their countries uh, and, and be uh, you know exposed to allegations of anti-Semitism and so on. So it's, it's a situation where they are in a rabbit hole, 
that they themselves put themselves in it. Uh, uh, and this is on the assumption that at least some of them are not as as callous as you have just described them, you know, uh, totally indifferent to to the images and and uh, uh, and the uh, and the reports we are getting uh, on an hourly basis uh, from the Gaza Strip. Professor Ilan Pape, thank you. That excerpted interview with Ilan Pape was by Afshin Mertansi from his twice weekly program called Going Underground TV. You can find the complete interview at the Canadian-based streaming service called Rumble.com. Search for Going Underground TV at Rumble.com. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You have to look harder these days because of U.S. and EU prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows, find information for online support. There's a link at my website along with a podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. For 26 years, the shortwave report has been produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. While I'm recuperating from spinal surgery, I'm staying in a house that is connected to the grid. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.